All right, as the uh, kids are making their way out, um, when I just go ahead and let you know that uh, this morning, uh, and really over the next several weeks, as we walk through the book of Job, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be pulling uh, from, from texts throughout the book of Job and, and even uh, from other parts of Scripture. Last week, we opened this series, the book of Job, and we did an, over, an overview of the entire book. And the, the main point of the sermon last week was that while we may suffer in ways we don't understand, we can take comfort in knowing that God sovereignly orchestrates suffering for his glory and for our good. Now, that was kind of the main idea last week. And I had said that over the next five weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to go back into the book of Job and we're going to begin to take a deeper dive into different aspects of the book of Job uh, and take a closer look. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God in the book of Job. The title of this morning's sermon is God's Transcendent Sovereignty in Job. And I think that there's, there's one thing in particular in the book of Job that makes many people uncomfortable, and that is the way that Job describes God's role in all of the evil that comes upon him. For example, in chapter 2, verse 10, after his wife tells him to curse God and die because they've essentially lost everything, Job replies in, in, in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Now, it's passages like that that tend to throw a wrench into the way that many people, even many Christians, think about God's sovereignty over evil. And when it comes to the problem of evil, many people, I would even argue most people, try to find a way to get God off of the hook. In other words, they try to find a way to work around so that God is somehow not responsible for the evil that takes place. All Christians would affirm that God is good, and most Christians would affirm that God is all-powerful as well. But that presents a dilemma, because if God is all-powerful and he's perfectly good, then how do we explain the existence of evil? On the surface, it seems like an irreconcilable contradiction. And so, the prevailing view, I think, of most Christians today is, is what I would call the free will argument. And it goes something like this. Yes, God is, is all-powerful, and he could stop evil, but he usually refrains from intervening so that he doesn't violate our free will. So God permits evil, but he does not cause it to happen, and it's not his will for it to happen. So in this view, God basically relinquishes his right to control everything that happens, and in essence becomes a bystander who winces as he watches evil take place. But he finds ways to take the evil that, is, that has happened and somehow turns it around for good and he makes lemonades out of the lemons that he has given. And so God kind of operates around the constraints that he has put on his own sovereignty. I probably just described the view of many people in this room of God's sovereignty over evil. And yet... The book of Job and the rest of Scripture clearly contradict this view of God's sovereignty over evil. 
Scripture paints a clear picture of a God who both decrees evil and detests evil. God is both sovereign over evil and God is perfectly good. What I want you to consider this morning is that rather than trying to rescue God's goodness by robbing him of his sovereignty, I want us to see how the scriptures actually reconcile these two attributes of God that on the surface seem to contradict. They seem irreconcilable, but I want your eyes to be open much in the way that Job's eyes were to a God who is so much bigger, so much more glorious, so much better than you could have ever possibly imagined beforehand. What I want to do this morning is I want you to see that God is perfectly sovereign and perfectly good. But to get there, first we need to look at the transcendence of God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about God's transcendence, and I'll explain in a, in a moment why that's so important and foundational for where we're going. And then we'll look at God's sovereignty over evil and his goodness in the book of Job, because both are clearly affirmed. And then we'll talk about how we reconcile those two things that seem to contradict one another. And as we do this, I think it's very important that we all stop and pause for a minute. I'm going to pray here in just a second, and I'm going to invite you to as well. And I want you to pray that God right now would give you a humble and receptive heart, because I understand that this is probably a sensitive subject for many of you. Some of you are walking through suffering right now in your life. Many of you have gone through very, very difficult times. And as I said last week, if you haven't yet, you will in the future. And so we need the Lord to help us to be able to receive with humility what his word says so that we don't come and, 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 and try to shape God's word to fit the mold of our preconceived notions about him. But rather, we need to pray that God would help us to, to allow his word to shape us. Let's let God speak for himself from his word this morning. That's been my prayer all week is that I would get out of the way and that you would hear clearly from the word of God. And I'm going to do my best to exposit what the scriptures teach us about God's sovereignty over evil. And if you do that, I believe that at the end of the day, as I said earlier, you will discover that God is so much more glorious than you ever imagined before. So let's, let's pray. And I want to invite you to pray over your own heart as I pray. Vermont. Oh God, we need your help now in this moment. We're, we're really venturing out into deep, deep waters. We're venturing into things that are, 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 to be honest, far, far too great for us to fully understand or comprehend. We're talking about your sovereignty. We're talking about your transcendence and words don't even, can't even begin to describe just how great you are just how powerful you are. And yet, God, you haven't left us completely in the dark. You have revealed yourself to us. Even though we cannot know you exhaustively because you're infinite and we're finite, we can know you truly. You have revealed yourself to us in creation and in your word and in the person of Jesus Christ. But God, in our finite beings in the flesh, we, we can't even properly understand your word. We can't know you. So Holy Spirit, would you please come now and help us? Give us the humility to hear what you want to say to us this morning. God, I pray that you would guide us into truth. 
I pray that you would open up the eyes of every one of us, including myself this morning, to see you in all of your glory. And Lord, I pray that at the end of these next few moments together, that our response as we behold you in your glory and your word would be just like Job, that we would that we would worship you, that we would lay our hands over our mouths. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's, there's an assumption in the hearts of most people that we have a right to life and to comfort, and that if, if God is good, then he must provide these things for us. And they assume that a good God has no right to will that suffering would take place. But this way of thinking discounts God's transcendence. That word transcendence means to surpass or exceed. The transcendence of God is another way of describing the infinite gulf that exists between the creator and the created, between the infinite and the finite. God is is unassailable, which means that he's unable to be questioned. No one can approach God and charge him with wrong. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's, that's what God teaches Job in the last four chapters of the book. In chapters 38 to 42, after Job peppers God with questions and questions why God would allow all of these things to happen, God says to Job in chapter 40, verse 2, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. God went on to invite Job to prove that he had the right to contend with him. He says in chapter 40, verses 10 to 11, a few verses later, he, he, God challenges Job. He says, okay, Job, if you're so mighty, if you're so great, then adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Basically, God is telling Job, prove that you're on my level. And then you can have the right to come and question me about righteousness and about justice. If if I were to start arguing with the world's leader in quantum mechanics about quantum mechanics, it would be foolish, right? He would rightly say to me, are you seriously questioning me? What right do you have? What, what credentials do you have to be able to question my conclusions on quantum mechanics? And the gulf between us and God is infinitely larger than the gulf between me and the world's leading expert in quantum mechanics. Herman Bovink, the theologian, said the distance between God and us is the gulf between the infinite and the finite, between eternity and time, between being and becoming, between the all and the nothing. So that means that if we run up against something, or if we run up against a seeming contradiction, it is not God who must bend to us into our understanding, it is we who must bend to him. At the end of the day, because God is infinite and we are finite, there are many things we cannot know about God and about his ways. God's transcendence also clearly implies his sovereignty. If he's the creator and the sustainer of all, 
then he has the right to govern everything. The Lord says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God's transcendence implies both might and right. It means that God has both the power and the authority to do whatever he pleases because he's the transcendent creator and Lord of everything in all of creation. That's why Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And if God is sovereign over all things, then that means that his sovereignty must extend to evil. R.C. Sproul once said that there are no maverick molecules in the universe. He meant to say by that that nothing happens by accident. God controls the movement and the happenings of everything, everywhere, all the time. God is not reactive to human beings or to nature. None of what transpired in the book of Job was accidental. It didn't catch God off guard. God himself drew Satan's attention to Job in the first place when Satan and the sons of God came into his presence. And it was Satan that had to get permission from God to even touch Job. And even when Satan did get permission from God, God set limits on what Satan was allowed to do. This is why you'll sometimes, maybe you've heard somebody say uh, at one point, God has Satan on a leash. That's what that means. And Job himself did not hesitate to attribute his calamity to God, did he? After Job lost his wealth and his family and then his health, Job acknowledged God, not Satan, as the ultimate cause. Look again at verses 20 and 21 in chapter 1. After Job loses his children and all of his possessions, it says this, it says, Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we go on to chapter 2, verse 10. This time Job is afflicted with these terrible sores all over his body. He's racked with pain. His wife has basically told him, You just need to curse God and die. And how does Job respond? He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Then listen to this. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know, this is, this is true to life, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that when people suffer, they don't cry out why to Satan, do they? They cry out why to God, Right? It's because deep down we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is ultimately in control of all things because we were made in his image. And there's a part of us, even if we want to suppress that truth, that knows that there is a creator who made all things and that he's Lord and he governs everything, including evil. But perhaps the clearest passage 
And the entire book of Job makes clear that God brought about the calamity that fell upon Job is chapter 42, verse 11. After this whole ordeal is over, God has restored to Job twofold all that he has lost. His family comes to console him and to celebrate with him God's restoration. And it says this. It says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. It's clear that it was the Lord's will that brought about this calamity on Job. God's sovereignty over evil isn't just limited to Job. Guys, this is all over the Bible. And honestly, we could spend the next couple of Sunday mornings just going through text after text after text that says the same thing, clearly. I'll just give you one more example outside of the book of Job. In Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 to 7, the Lord says through Isaiah to the pagan king of Persia, King Cyrus, he says this, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There's God's transcendence again. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Is the God you worship that big? Is the God that you worship that sovereign? You know, Scott Christensen, pastor and author, points out here in this passage that light and darkness and well-being and calamity are, are poetic ways of, of putting up two poles that include everything in between. It's a poetic way of saying that everything that happens, all the way from the good, all the way to the bad, all of it is ordained by God for his own sovereign purposes. Brothers and sisters, there is no room for debate if we are going to stand on the foundation of God's word for truth. It makes it very clear that his sovereignty is meticulous. His control extends to all things, including evil. And yet, God's sovereignty does not cancel out his goodness. We must affirm just as equally that God is good. While he decrees evil, he also detests evil. After each onslaught of suffering that Job endured in chapters 1 and 2, the author is careful to point out that Job continued to affirm God's goodness. It says each time that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Isn't that interesting how Job did not seem to find a contradiction in God's goodness and sovereignty, did he? He freely acknowledges that the Lord gave and the Lord took away. And yet, in the next breath, it says Job did not charge God with wrong. Job did not seem to have a problem reconciling these two things. Isn't that interesting? Job, although he wrestled with how to make sense of it, and it was confusing for him, and that's why he wrestles throughout the book, he never denies the sovereignty of God or the goodness of God. He clings to them like he's clinging to the mast of a ship in the midst of a storm that's tossing the ship back and forth and he refuses to let go of the God of the Bible that he knows. I don't understand what's going on, but I know he's sovereign. I know he's good and I won't flinch one inch on either one. 
the goodness of God entails his kindness towards his creation. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. It's, it sure is easy for us to focus on the uh, to lose focus on all the good that God does, isn't it? It's easy for us to focus on the good things that God withholds rather than acknowledging all of the mercies that He pours out on us. Every single breath is a gift. If you have kids that whine, you know a little bit of how God feels, don't you? They rarely thank us for the roof over their heads or the food on the table, right? The greatest display of God's loving kindness, like we talked about last week, is the cross of Christ. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Both Scripture and experience teach us that God is infinitely kind to us. The goodness of God also entails His perfect justice. Deuteronomy 32 says that His work is perfect, for all of His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. The goodness of God also entails His holiness and His moral purity. God cannot do wrong. He can't be charged with wrongdoing. While God is sovereign over evil, He remains unstained by evil. He can decree that it take place and not be morally responsible for it. In, in Job's case, it was the wind and the fire and the Chaldeans and the Sabaean raiders that actually destroyed everything that he had. But we know, we get a behind-the-scenes look in Job's story that behind the Chaldeans and the wind and the fire was Satan. And behind Satan was God. God was the ultimate cause, and Job knew it. Now, some people might say that that makes God no different than a mob boss. Say, Pastor, how can you say that God is good if God was the one that was ultimately behind all this calamity that happened to Job? How can you say, Pastor, that God is good if you're going to tell me that God is the one that's ultimately behind the calamity that has happened in my own life? How could a God like that be good? Some would say that if God is ultimately behind it, that he's like a mob boss. In 1992, John Gotti, the leader of the Gambino crime family, was convicted of numerous crimes, including murder. Now, John Gotti himself didn't pull the trigger or commit all the crimes, but he ordered them to be carried out. And so he was held responsible. So what is the difference between that and how God operates? There's two huge differences. The first one is what we've already said. God is tr the transcendent Lord of all creation, and John Gotti was not. God has the might and the right to govern all things, and human beings do not. God is just. The foundation of his throne is justice and righteousness. And John Gotti was not. The second difference is this. When God decrees evil, it must always have some good purpose that could not be brought about in any other way. Theologians describe this as divine compatibilism. 
And this is kind of the main point, the main takeaway that I want you guys to come away with this morning. God ordains evil and suffering to take place to bring about a greater good that could not be brought about in any other way. God ordains evil and suffering to take place to bring about a greater good that could not be brought about in any other way. You see, there are always two explanations for everything that takes place. God is the the primary remote cause of evil. And Satan, or sinful man, is the secondary local cause. The difference comes down to intentions. While Satan intended to bring harm upon Job, God's intentions were for good. One of the best pictures of this in all of the Bible is in the, book, is in the story of Joseph in Genesis. Do you guys remember this story? Joseph had brothers, and Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, and so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with Joseph, and Joseph rose to second in command in all of Egypt. And he was put in charge of the storehouses in Egypt. And a famine came on the land. There had been seven years of plenty, and then there were seven years of famine. And sure enough, Joseph's brothers, his family, begins to starve. They think Joseph's dead. They come to Egypt to buy grain, and guess who God has put in charge of all of the storehouses? Joseph. So they go and appear before Joseph. They don't even recognize him. They beg him for food. Joseph recognizes his brothers. And the long story short, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, and they were terrified because they thought Joseph was definitely going to take revenge against them. But he was not bitter or angry. Why? It's because Joseph saw God's sovereign hand in everything that had taken place in his life, even the evil. Listen to these words in Genesis 50, 20 and 21. Joseph said this to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph understood that his brothers had truly committed an evil act. What they did to him was wicked and it was sinful and they were morally responsible for it. At the same time, Joseph also knew and understood that God's sovereign hand was behind it all along, that this was all God's plan and purpose so that he could be put in a position to where he would be raised up to second in command of all of Egypt so that he could keep his family alive when this famine would come, so that God could keep his promise, his covenant with the children of Abraham. God did not react to what happened in Joseph's life. It was God's plan all along that he would be sold into slavery in Egypt so that Joseph could preserve the life of his family. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. I think an even clearer illustration of this in the Bible is the cross of Christ, isn't it? No suffering was more unjust, no act was more evil than the rejection and the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. Would you agree that that's probably the most wicked and heinous thing that's ever been done? Now let me ask you a question. Was that an accident? 
Was God reacting to that? Did it surprise the father when the people of Israel rejected the son and cried out, crucify him? No, we know it didn't surprise the father. We know it didn't surprise Jesus. Jesus kept telling his disciples it was going to happen. The son of man is going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. And they didn't get it. They didn't understand. When facing persecution, the early church took comfort in knowing that God was sovereign over evil. And they saw the cross as the primary proof. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. When they had been threatened with persecution, they're praying, they're huddled together in a home and they're praying together and they say this to the Lord in their prayer. They say, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you hear that? The evil that Herod and Pilate and the mob committed against Jesus was what God predestined to take place. What they intended for evil, God planned for good. A good that could not have come about in any other way. Guys, that's why Jesus was praying in Gethsemane to the Father. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was not any other way. There's no other way for us to be saved from our sin. The only way was for the sinless, spotless Son of God to be crucified on a cross as a substitute in our place so that we could receive the free gift of God's forgiveness and eternal life. That is the greater good that could not have come about in any other way. That is why God predestined the cross. That is why God foreordained that on that day the people would cry out, crucify him and reject the Son of God. No, Jesus' disciples didn't understand what was happening in the moment. They were confused. They were scared. They scattered. But God was in control the entire time. There's no other way that God could have demonstrated the extent of his love for undeserving sinners than by giving his only son. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're going to talk a lot more about this next week. But one of the things that I want you to consider is that if it were not for the existence of sin and of evil, then there's no way that God could have possibly demonstrated the extent of his love for us. There's no way that Christ could have died for us while we were still sinners. There's no, that, that's, that's how we can begin to even fathom and understand the depths of God's love. It's precisely because Jesus died for us while we were still sinners and bore the wrath that we deserve in our place so that we come to have a greater understanding of the magnificent love of God that can't even begin to be fathomed. It's the dark backdrop of evil and suffering that allows us to see with even greater clarity the light and the beauty of God's goodness and love. I didn't get that. Did you well, you should have gotten that. <laughs> <laughs> Only the Holy Spirit can help you. <laughs> you didn't hear in the back, Siri just said, I didn't get that on my watch. So, shouldn't be surprised. She's of the world. 
Guys, because we've all sinned against an infinitely holy God, and only a perfect sacrifice can ever pay for all of our sin and remove our guilt, God had to send his one and only son Jesus to die for us. And I just want to stop real quick before we move on to some application and just invite you. If you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I want to invite you to do that now. Because as I just said a moment ago, there is no other way to be saved. God is so good, and he loves us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. And if you'll place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, in this moment right now, you can be forgiven of your sin, and you can receive the free gift of eternal life with him. You don't have to have your mind wrapped around God. You don't have to completely understand him. We just, we're just called to know and to trust him. We don't need to rescue God of his sovereignty or to rob God of his sovereignty to rescue his goodness or vice versa. God is both sovereign over evil and perfectly good. I want to read you this quote by a guy named Thaddeus Williams. And I'm going to read it slowly because it's kind of a mouthful, but I think it's really good, which is why I decided to read it. It'll be appear on the screen as well. He says this. He says, A God who both predetermines and grieves evil replaces fear of cosmic alienation and absurdity with a sense of solidarity because God authentically feels our suffering and stability because God authoritatively Purposes are suffering. Let me try to put that in layman's terms. Because God is both sovereign over evil and with us in our suffering, our suffering always has purpose and we are never alone in it. God both predetermines evil, so it means it's never spinning out of control, and God grieves evil, meaning that he's with us in it. If we sacrifice God's sovereignty or his goodness, then we are going to lose one of those two things. But the beauty and the glory of the God of the Bible is that he's both transcendent and imminent. He's both high above us and he's with us. He reigns in the heavens and he came and he dwelt among us. He's sovereign over evil and he's with us in the midst of it, grieving alongside of us. This is the God of the Bible. This is the triune God, the only one who's worthy of worship. This is the God that we are here to worship this morning. Yes, let's give him a hand. We should give God a hand. Now, what implications does this have for us? There's so many, but I want to give you three before we close. Number one, the sovereignty of God drives out fear and anxiety. Because God is sovereign over evil, no evil can touch you apart from the will of your Father in heaven who loves you. After telling his disciples that they would suffer persecution in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus comforted them with the sovereignty of God over evil. And he told them in Matthew 10, 29, he said, Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. The point Jesus was trying to make is that God's sovereignty is meticulous and it extends to everything, even your suffering. So don't be afraid. If you are persecuted... It, was, it is because it was decreed by the Father, and you know that he loves you, and he has a good purpose in it. If God doesn't even let a sparrow drop from the sky, he's certainly not going to let the hand of a single persecutor touch you, apart from his good will. If years ago, after a flight with really bad turbulence, I suffered from some flight anxiety for about a year, and I'd get 
got really nervous on, on flights. And that passage that I just read to you is what God used to drive out that fear and that anxiety. I remember sitting on the plane as we were getting ready to taxi and then take off and thinking about that passage and just knowing that if God's not going to let a sparrow fall to the ground, apart from his sovereign and good purpose, he's not going to let this plane drop out of the sky either. He's sovereign over it. He keeps it flying. And if God, you know, in his will, ordains that this plane's going to drop out of the sky, then he, my loving Heavenly Father, has a good purpose in it for me. The sovereignty of God drives out fear and anxiety. The sovereignty of a loving Heavenly Father is anxiety repellent. The sovereignty of God also drives out bitterness. Joseph, remember the story of Joseph, he was able to forgive his brothers because he saw the hand of God behind the evil that they perpetrated against him. If God was not sovereign over the evil that others perpetrated against you, then that would make suffering meaningless. But because God is sovereign over it, you know that if someone sins against you, even if what they did to you is wrong, they can't ruin your life. Do you, do you understand that? If you're a child of God, no one can ruin your life. Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can change your eternity. Absolutely nothing. Which frees us from, from this need to try to harbor bitterness and fear. Because even the sin that others commit against you is being used by God to sanctify you and to draw you closer to Him. That's what helps you to let go of bitterness. It's the sovereignty of God that actually makes it possible for us to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies. I, I'm convinced that I don't think we can actually do that well unless we come to fully know and understand that God is completely sovereign over evil, including the evil that others perpetrate against us. It's what enables us to be able to rejoice in the midst of our afflictions. And it keeps us from using bitterness as a self-defense mechanism to keep others from continuing to hurt us. Because we realize, oh, I don't have to protect myself. My sovereign and good father is, is, is in control of everything, and he's protecting me. And he's not going to let anything happen to me that's not for my good. So I can let go of this bitterness that I'm using as a wall to put up against other people. And instead, I can turn the other cheek and I can love my enemies. The sovereignty of God drives out bitterness. And lastly, the sovereignty of God drives out despair. I'm going to ask David and the worship team to come up as I just walk through this one. But because a good God sovereignly decrees your suffering, that means that none of it is meaningless. When you take your child to the doctor to get shots, you don't delight in watching your child cry out with, with fear or in pain when the shot comes, right? You're not, that doesn't give you pleasure. doesn't make you happy. And yet you willingly take your child to the doctor and the doctor willingly gives the shot to the child. Why? Because the idea behind it is that you have a greater good in mind for your child. Your intention is to keep your child from a much more severe disease. When God brings about suffering in your life, whether it's cancer or the death of a loved one or being stolen from or being betrayed, it is not meaningless. It is not random. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that his purposes are for your good. 
It is because God is both sovereign over evil and good that a verse like Romans 8.28 that we know so well can even make sense. Where it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Only a God who is totally sovereign over evil and good could, could say such a thing. Could make such a promise to us. And again, some of those purposes that God has, we can know. Things like our sanctification. We know God uses trials to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. But there are many good purposes of God that we'll never know or understand inside of eternity. And it's not for us to know everything. It's for us to trust Him. William Cooper wrote a hymn one time called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. I want to read you a couple of lines from this, this hymn as we close. He says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God ordains evil and suffering to take place to bring about a greater good that could not be brought about in any other way. We're going to uh, transition to closing song now. And as we sing, I just want you to pray. And maybe, um, maybe the Lord is inviting you this morning to place your trust in Christ for the first time today. And you can do that right where you're at as we're singing, by acknowledging and admitting that you've sinned against God, that you've disobeyed his commands, and professing your faith that Jesus died in your place and rose from the dead. And if you make that decision, I really would love it if you come and find me or Pastor Keith or Pastor Andrew afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, and maybe you just need to repent because if you're honest, you would admit that you've been belittling God's glory in your own heart and in your own mind. And you've been trying to rescue God, God's goodness by robbing him of his sovereignty. And like Job, you just need to lay your hand over your mouth this morning and you just need to worship him and acknowledge God. You're so much glorious than I had ever even comprehended when I walked in this morning. Whatever it is that you need to do, however the Lord may be moving in your heart, I want to invite you to do that in prayer this morning. Let's, let's stand together and listen.